Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Our discussion for this podcast series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development of leadership skills, career transitions, and more. My name is Sarah Bruner. I'm a PGY1 resident at the University of Virginia Health in Charlottesville, Virginia, and a part of the ASHP Fellows Advisory Group within ASHP's New Practitioners Forum. I will be your host for this pharmacy leadership podcast. With me today are some of our ASHP 2021 Fellows, Dr. Jessica Kerner, Corporate Assistant Director of Clinical Pharmacy Services at RWJ Barnabas Health, Dr. Allison King, Investigational Drug Pharmacist and PGY-1 Residency Program Director at Children's Mercy Hospital. Dr. Lee Kroll, Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. Dr. Kirsten Weber Tatarellis, Vice President of Pharmacy Operations and Clinical Services at Advocate for a Health. And Dr. Katherine Foster, Associate Chief of Clinical Pharmacy Services and PGY-1 Residency Program Director at the VA Eastern Kansas Healthcare System. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started talking about today's topic, which is focusing on advice for the new practitioner. Starting with our first question for the panel, how have you handled burnout, especially in these current times? We'll start off with Dr. Jessica Kerner. Thank you, Sarah, for that excellent question. For me, burnout is always a moving target. Normally, I try to stay on top of practices that I know are essential to my well-being, like meditation, exercise, and eating well. In these current times that are exceptionally trying, I try to stay aware of how I'm responding to those around me and to situations around me. And if I'm not reacting in a way that I like by being short-tempered or overreacting to a situation, I take a moment to pause and really evaluate what I might need. Self-care and preventing burnout does not have to be big things like a spa day or a shopping spree. For me, it's about building in small pieces of time to feel refreshed and restored, maybe a five-minute meditation or going for a walk outside, even when it's busy, you come back much more prepared to face the day. Thank you. And Dr. Weber Tatarellis? To sort of take a different angle from Jessica's angle as it relates to just personally managing burnout, I think one of the biggest challenges I've had not only to feeling burnout within myself as I've led teams, but also being able to recognize burnout in my leaders, as well as our frontline teams in the last two plus years in particular. And so I think we've all definitely experienced burnout in different degrees. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge and we all express it in different ways. I think in healthcare, there's always just been this general acceptance that there's a certain degree of baseline burnout and that's just sort of part of our job. It's time to change that. I honestly think it's too late to change that. We're about you know, two years behind that ball, right, is we're really recognizing the significance of that in our industry right now. But particularly as leaders, we are the cornerstone of changing that culture of healthcare as we look ahead to reconciling our current state. Yeah, I was talking with a technician yesterday, and honestly, she couldn't have said it better. And she said it, that it's just been relentless. And I really think that word stuck with me. So, you know, we all, I think, have tools and tricks to manage through a usual state of burnout, but I think what's happening right now is that it just feels relentless. It doesn't feel like it's backing off. And so I think that, I don't know if we have a true 
cookbook solution to navigating through this, but I can share a couple strategies that I've deployed as a leader to trying to help my teams navigate through it. And particularly the most critical thing I think is acknowledging burnout is a very, very real thing. And that means talking about it regularly, every day, making it a part of your daily, weekly, monthly team meetings or huddles, making sure the discussions we've done, just as we talk about safety and operations and clinical handoffs, but making sure you leave space for it. And if you don't leave space for something, we all know it doesn't exist, right? And then it won't matter. So one strategy I've used for my teams and the leaders that I lead is to sort of take us out of this constant chaos feeling that often leads to the emotional feeling of burnout is to try to make routines part of our routine. And I think Jessica alluded to that as a personal strategy for herself, but that ensures we have a space set aside to check in. So we have a cadence of expected touch bases that help us structure should the unexpected occur, should that stressful burnout provoking situation arise, that we have frequent opportunities to identify triggers and lean out if we need it. And we talk about it and such that the culture has transitioned that this is a pretty regular conversation between us and including with myself, right? I'm a leader and I need to talk about it too. And there's days where I'm struggling, right? And that's absolutely okay. You know, we're just more fluent now in identifying this with each other as we think about some of those triggers and being able to raise that flag or say, hey, you know what, I need to step away. But a basic conversation starter that I throw out there is just, hey, how are you feeling? How are you really doing? Right? Not just that, hey, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you really doing? Or what can I help you with to make this day better? Right? That's just one strategy. I think the next and maybe the most influential thing after you've tried to set that groundwork for the culture is talking about it and allowing your team to feel comfortable raising their hand should they feel it or experience it is providing the support to navigate them through it. And I get that that is really tricky right now, right? Staffing shortages are a real thing. The one thing as a leader I've recognized and even the most resilient team members is setting those boundaries of work-life balance. And I honestly think in healthcare, we've scoffed at that concept forever, right? Knowing that those lines blur more than anything. But I think it's time to cut the apathy and really dig into this concept and making sure that we step forward and provide the space for our teams and protect that space for them so that they can step aside and sort of relinquish the stressors of work and recoup our minds And if you lead forward with it, your teams will follow. They will respect that concept and be able to understand the boundaries of balancing work and life. And that is really what regenerates us all, right? Making sure that you build in some strategies as a leader to do that for yourself, but also to lead by example and make sure that you're providing that space for your teams. And hopefully over time, that helps to really make some simple strides to help prevent it in the future. So those are just generally my thoughts and strategies around burnout right now. Thank you. I think both of these are really helpful and insightful, especially just new practitioners. So as a new practitioner, it can be difficult to stay up to date on practice changes, managing difficult conversations, and really recognizing what you do not know. So in your practice areas, how has pharmacy education changed with the recent spotlight on opioid use? And we'll have Dr. Crawl answer this, followed by Dr. Foster. Since I've been practicing since the dark ages, particularly in the pain management world, we've had this wild pendulum swing of opioids are only for patients in the process of end of life to opioids should be given to everyone. And now back to, we really don't recommend opioids for anybody. And somewhere in the middle, the healthcare providers 
are supposed to manage these wild swings in public opinion, in healthcare opinion, in regulatory opinion, in industry opinion, and somehow we're supposed to balance all of that. So quite a few years ago, in the early 2000s, we started teaching more about not just pharmacology of analgesics and medications, but also applying those things to patients and understanding that a patient is more than just a case, that they're a human, and that we need to approach them very holistically. So in pharmacy education, back in 2012, when we realized that this was not going to be going well, we put together a summit of suggestions for um, colleges of pharmacy to follow with regard to pain education for our students and residents. And that you know, was implemented by some, and I know that the AACP and other organizations are also taking steps. ASHP has had uh, education all along for the last couple of decades on pain management. But one thing that I think has really benefited in the education field, not only clinical practice, but I think more in the classroom, we're talking more about having those difficult conversations and using a little bit more of our motivational interviewing techniques. So when we get into a situation where a patient is very distraught, a provider is very distraught, and we're put in the middle of that, trying to be the peacemaker as it were. I think what I've actually learned and what we teach more now is go to where the patient is, empathize with them, walk with them, listen with a healing ear to their whole person. And honestly, that takes you a whole lot farther than having every answer because there are so many tricky clinical questions, so many judgment questions, so many emotionally loaded questions and suffering that actually just sitting down and empathizing with the patient, do reflective listening with them is something that they truly appreciate. And sometimes that is enough to allow a better path forward for them just having listened. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Foster. Yes, I totally agree with Dr. Kroll. When you meet with patients with those hard conversations, you don't just listen to them, but you look at their body language, their facial expressions, because you truly see the full picture of what is going on and what needs to be done with their pain management. I've also learned to definitely understand what other healthcare disciplines can help with whether it's a physical therapist with dry needling and so forth or chiropractic, that would help too to engage some of those recommendations outside the pharmacology world too to make sure the patient's pain management is what helps with their needs as well. Regarding too, besides that, there's a lot of information out there, guidelines. You can never truly know everything. So just knowing where to go, whether it's ASHP, the CDC, the WHO guidelines will definitely help direct you on other pain management opportunities too, to help manage those patients. But again, that's probably the hardest thing to do is those crucial conversations, knowing that knowledge, talking to the patient so they understand what pain medications do as well. Because when they're so used to getting opioids all these years, they think it helps manage their pain and it really just changes their perception. So you really need to dig down, try to figure out if it's muscular, neuropathic, or other types of pain to really address those issues. Thank you. Our next question for the panel is, what ways can new practitioners continue to stay involved with the practice of pharmacy? And this will be answered by Dr. Kerner and Dr. King. 
I was so glad to be able to answer this question because I remember asking my mentor when I was a new practitioner, basically this exact same question. And their answer was many years ago was to honestly be an active member of ASHP. In ASHP, you'll build amazing, incredible connections with other practitioners, explore different areas of interest within the sections and forums and all the different opportunities available throughout this organization. In my own experience with working my teams, I've personally tried to lift others as I personally climb and adjust roles and move upward in the organization. In any role, you can always ask your manager, your supervisor, or a colleague even outside of your department to get involved with education, journal clubs for others, CE study groups, being on department, hospital, or organizational committees, or even being cross-trained in new areas. There's so many ways to stay involved with pharmacy, but then also expand the opportunities that you're seeing just by asking and holding us as leaders accountable to expose you to different opportunities. I echo some of the same pieces. I think that staying involved in your career requires a little bit more initiative than what it does in pharmacy school. In pharmacy school, activities are readily available, whereas in your career, you need to seek out the opportunities. I would suggest starting with your local and state organizations, and then also looking into opportunities with ASHP. When I started my career, I started off with the New Practitioners Forum with ASHP. The other option or available possibility for you is to talk to your pharmacy school, your local pharmacy school, and see if you can help out with like pharmacy school interviews or other activities that they may have. Volunteering in general is beneficial to your practice in so many different ways. I learned this in pharmacy school. We were exposed to doing service hours with the Boys and Girls Club of the city that we were in. And Through that, we gained meaningful experiences by interacting with young children, but then also their parents. I also followed through with some of this then in my early career where I volunteered at a thrift store. The people that I served and the people that I were working with are your patients. They're your customers. They're your clients. They're the families that you work with as a practicing pharmacist. And so you learn to build relationships in different settings and develop interpersonal skills through those interactions. My time at the thrift store was very rewarding from multiple aspects, but more than anything, I gained a lot of insight into my own beliefs and my own judgment while I was exposed to different cultures and different economic classes. And so I would consider thinking a little bit outside of the box when thinking about staying involved in pharmacy and looking at things that are not just medically related. Thank you. So I'll actually kick it right back to you, Dr. King, for the next question, followed by Dr. Kral. The fourth question is, how are you able to manage your activities and obligations while still making time for yourself? This was definitely a very hard lesson to learn as I started my career. At this point in my career, I leave work at work. It takes a lot of discipline, and I most certainly didn't do that in the very beginning. But I intentionally do not check my work email when I'm at home. I want to check it, don't get me wrong, but I know that if I peek at my email, there will always be something for me to do, and then I will lose part of my personal time. If it's important, work will call or text me and get a hold of me. The other piece I do is that I try not to bring work home. 
By following this practice, I found that I'm actually more efficient when I am at work because I don't have a buffer or time to do other projects. If I absolutely have to take something home, I set time parameters. And typically what I do is I either work on it really early in the morning, so I force myself to get up and stay focused on the activity, or I do it late at night after everyone's gone to sleep in my house. None of these practices I did when I was a new practitioner, which is why I share them with everyone, because I learned the hard way and I lost a lot of personal time. And as we talked about earlier with the burnout, it's important that you take that time for yourself. I guess I would just add that too. Dr. King, you learned that so early in your career. I've been doing it for 30 years, still trying to find the balance. In fact, it probably took me up until the pandemic to actually take that time, force myself to take that time for myself. And having raised two children in the midst of a raging career and trying to manage multiple teams at the hospital and the clinic, it was, we were at that burnout even before pandemic happened. And so that really kind of brought it home for many of us who've been working a long, long time, decades, and it finally had to be addressed. I think that even us dinosaurs have learned that the young people, our newer practitioners, such as yourselves, have come to appreciate more of that balance, I think. But it's still something that my priorities here then the last two, three years then have really shifted to my family. First of all, myself. Self-care is you can't take care of anybody else, including your family or your patients, unless you take care of yourself. Self-compassion, mindfulness, finding joy and peace and calm in everything that we do as much as we possibly can. Don't sweat the small stuff. So doing self-care and then nothing is more important than family. And I happen to work for a physician at this point, and that is his primary objective as well. Family is more important than anything. And then of course, patients, because they truly need us and everything else comes after that. Writing a policy, doing a drug class review, anything else comes last. So start with yourself and do that first. Like Dr. King, I try and schedule anything I do on my personal time now into very finite time periods. Although I do the self-care first. And then if I have time, I do the work stuff. I will tell you, it took almost three decades for me to truly fully understand that self-care not only benefits me, but everyone around me. Thank you so much for both of those responses. So our last question is for all of our speakers. What is one piece of advice you would give to a new practitioner today? Well, this is Kirsten. I'll start it off. I love this question because I think Whenever I think I'm going to change the answer, I sometimes end up back at the same one. But I always start first with the rules that I raise my four kids by, which is work hard, be accountable, be respectful, first and foremost, right? Come forward with that. Always do that. Lead with that. And you'll find yourself in success, ultimately, if you stand by those. But I think the one thing that I always land on when I think about our residents and our students coming through and then ultimately new practitioners coming under our wings is when someone taps you on your shoulder for an opportunity, no matter how new or uncomfortable to you, or no matter how unprepared you may feel at that moment or unready in your life, both personally or professionally, do me a favor and don't say no right away. You know, be inquisitive. In fact, maybe say yes first, and then maybe think no later if it truly doesn't line up with your sense of purpose. You know, I know I spoke earlier about boundaries and respecting and understanding your own limitations as we all did here today. 
I do see a lot of new practitioners with such firm boundaries that they believe they know where they want to end up even before they've begun. And I think your life and your professional journey is being a huge element of that is just that it's a journey and it's fueled by growth. And you don't know where that growth is going to take you unless you really potentially say yes sometimes. So you may find yourself in the most amazing, surprising, and fantastic places if you just say yes. When I reflect on my professional career, it was those yes moments that took me to new and different places. So that's my advice. I would advise to get involved, stay involved, and keep your network growing. That also help you with your career and meeting mentors throughout your lifetime to help you grow and improve your pharmaceutical skills and where you want to be in life. But also remember that every day is an adventure. Some days are hard. Just remember, you never lose. You only win, learn, and or grow. You may have some failures, but you got to realize you learn from those failures to move on and be more successful in life too. Thank you very much and good luck to you. My piece of advice to you and my out-of-the-box analogy for you is that you need to be very strategic about the projects that you choose. It takes about three years post-residency to fill your plate up with projects like the workload that you had in residency. The difficult part in all of this is you don't know what projects are coming down the road or the pipeline for you, and so you tend to take anything that comes your way. Try to avoid doing that as much as possible. The analogy that I tend to use is pretend that you're at a Thanksgiving buffet. Don't put a large scoop of mashed potatoes on your plate if you don't love mashed potatoes. If you do, your plate will be full and you'll lose space for when the food down the line is something that you most definitely love. In this sense, it would be the project that you most definitely love. So treat your career like a Thanksgiving Day plate. Don't take on projects just to be involved. Save time and space for projects that you're passionate about. It'll serve you more in the long run. And I did not intentionally mean to put in that pun there with food and serving, but that's the best piece of advice that I can give you. I would also say that sampling is a good idea. I remember very well coming out of my graduate school and wanting to take care of patients and teach and research and, and all the things. I wanted to do all the things. It was one of my mentors who actually said, rein it in a little bit. Maybe do one class and not coordinate the whole thing. Maybe do one paper this year and just kind of pace yourself. You never know when those opportunities are going to come up. So that's why you have a mentor. If you don't have one, when you first start the folks from your residency, the folks from your colleges of pharmacy are still going to be there for you. They don't go away just because you graduate. They're never going to go away. They're always going to be there for you. Lean on them. We like that. We like to continue to be useful. That's why we do what we do. I've had fellows, 80 fellows have gone through our program. You know, I get texts from them all the time. People who've graduated 10 years ago, still looking for mentorship, still looking for advice. Don't forget who got you to where you are? Lean on us. That's what we are here for. Wow. What great advice. This is a tough group to close with, but I would second everything that everyone said. There was so much value and benefit to all of these great points. My piece of advice, I wrote it and rewrote it many, many times again, but it's something that I've talked to our residents about every single year is really spending some time every single year working on a mission statement for yourself. If you can align with core principles that really feel good to you on the inside, that's going to help 
you make decisions about your career, about opportunities, about projects, all of these things we talked about today, and make sure they're really lining up with where you are today. And then we change as time goes on, right? So if you redo your mission statement every single year, it may adjust, you know, in the beginning, it may be focused on completing residency and knowing each guideline inside and out. And it may be about family in a year or so or whatever. Each person's is perfectly unique and different as they should be. But Having a mission statement to really anchor you to decisions, to help you make decisions, working with mentors, and really focusing on who you are and where you want to be is going to be the best advice. Times will be rocky. You know, things will be hard. Treatment decisions will be hard. Life decisions will be hard. But as Franklin Roosevelt said, smooth seas do not make good sailors. So I wish you all the luck as you enter the profession. And we're all excited to work with you as future leaders. Well, that was all so good. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Drs. Kerner, King, Craw, Weber, Tatarellis, and Dr. Foster for joining us today to offer their wisdom to new practitioners. Find more member-exclusive content, including resources for self-development, leading pharmacy enterprises, and teams and practice management on the ASHP website. Thank you for joining us, and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP Official Podcast. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.